The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 27th, 2016, the Live from Boston edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm on the stage of the Wilbur Theater in downtown Boston. To my left is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. And to Emily's left is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. We've got a sold-out crowd. We're two weeks out from the election, 13 days out, not that anyone is counting. 13 days out from the election. John Dickerson has been taking soundings. He's been counting the rings on the oak trees in his front yard. He's been examining the entrails of the sacrificial doves to look at the numbers. In our first segment, we're going to talk about the state of the race right now. Then, après moi, le deluge, what will happen to Trump and to Trump's voters after the election? And don't say, we'll be calling him President Trump. That's not going to happen. Assuming he loses, what's going to happen to those voters? And then our third segment is what Emily calls the repair shop segment. We are going to fix American elections and democracies in just 12 minutes. We're going to have specific ideas for fixing the election and for healing the breaches in, in Amer- the American public life. We will, of course, also have cocktail chatter. Our Slate Plus segment this week is a special seance, a mystical seance that we were part of in Boston this week. <laughs> well, nicely done. 13 days from this very moment, we will finally be finished with this quite dismal presidential campaign. Democrats who had the vapors before the debate started are toasting their college-educated selves. Nate Silver has Hillary's win possibility at nearly 90%. The New York Times is at 92%. That's down from 93% yesterday. Actually, I think Nate's at the mid-80s now. Yeah, yeah Nate's It's, it's mid-80s, like but it's near, it's near 90. Depends I said near it's, 90. Depends whether it's polls or polls plus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there have been sighs of relief at every independent bookstore in the country. But should there be size, John, what do the numbers look like to you uh, two weeks out? Well, you mean should people who are, want uh, Hillary Clinton to be president be... Uh, At the independent bookstores, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are people... Anyway. Okay. Um, well, if you look at the way this race has gone, every time Donald Trump is not in the center of the story exacerbating his weakness the polls tighten. This was happening. There was a tightening before the first debate. And then it blew open when he both didn't perform in the debate. And then when he got into a fight and talked about for two days, the Miss Universe, then the video came out, then the accusers came out, then the boom, the second and the third debate. So he has had a bad three weeks. Um, College educated white women were already deserting Trump. What we saw after the first debate, though, was college educated white men who were sticking with Trump started to leave him. And that, to me, was the most amazing thing. We, CBS did a poll, I guess it was after the second debate, where Trump had lost 10 points among those college... And that that's big. That's a big... You don't usually see those kind of big... Republicans usually win college-educated white people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mitt Romney won college-educated white women by four points. Hillary Clinton, in the most recent... I think it was the post-poll, is winning them by 30 
two points. So, um, anyway, but what was interesting was the, in our poll, actually between the first and the second debate, when the video came out and when the accusers came out, Hillary Clinton's numbers with college-educated white women stayed flat. But with men, it dropped considerably. Then the morning console poll came out, same drop. Uh, ABC poll came out, same drop, although they didn't differentiate between college and non-college, but it was dropping with men. So who was leaving? Republicans were leaving. If he stays out of trouble in terms of, you know, staying in a consistent fight that hurts him, some of those Republicans will come back. You see him getting 80 some odd high 80% of Republicans. Hillary's at 92. He's in for sort Democrats. of mid 80. Hillary's 92 for Democrats. He's in mid 80s for Republicans. I guess my point is that the people who can move back into his column are people who are Republicans. They want their team to win. They just find him too risky. If he stays out of trouble, you would expect those um, lines to get closer. But the problem is, A, I think about 10 million people have already voted. And in states like North Carolina and Florida and Ohio and Iowa, they're important. But also, he needs to do more than bring back his Republicans. He needs to reach out, and there's just not a lot of time. So uh, if you're a supporter of Hillary Clinton, those are the things that would make you feel happy. Emily, do you think there is a remotely plausible path left for Trump to win the presidency? Yeah. I mean, it's not over. And every time things seem to settle down a little bit, he catches up. And there are the Gary Johnson, Jill Stein voters, there are enough of them to make a difference if everybody broke for him at the end, aren't they? I don't know. They have to make a difference in the right states. And I think they're not making the difference in Colorado where they could have, where Gary Johnson was having a big... Uh, the The wonderful undecided voters that I asked to write in about two months ago have been this wonderful little focus group of about 200 of them. Many of them are Stein and Johnson voters, mostly because they're, well, yeah, I'd say mostly because they're irritated with the two choices at the two major parties. And a lot of those have been moving steadily into one of the two camps, mostly to, to Hillary Clinton. Is any of those people moved from undecided slash Stein slash Johnson to Trump, or have they all moved to Hillary? It's about 10 to 1 Hillary over Trump. Um, or maybe a little, little, um, you know, I don't know, 8 to 2. Uh, also known as 4 to 1. Uh, <laughs> fun, fun with math. Um, Those CBS polls are great, <laughs> by the way. Fortunately, they don't let me near them. Um, but One thing I read this week that surprised me is that Hillary's ratings of people who are voting for her as opposed to against Trump are as high as any Democrat in the last few decades, or at least like since Kerry. I think it went back further, actually, what do you mean? into Gore. That if, if you ask people, who are you, are you voting for affirmatively yeah. or against the other person, that her numbers of Affirmative, yes, which is not the narrative that we're usually hearing. Do you think that Hillary has to do one more thing? Or a f there are two weeks. There's no debate for no. Trump. So is there two weeks is a long time? Yeah, it's a really long time. I think what she has to do is what she's doing, which is go to every state that's got early voting. You know, they can target and watch who's doing the voting. So they know if college-educated women are voting in North Carolina and Florida and Ohio and Iowa and Colorado um, and Nevada. And they will place her strategically where they need to in order to get that vote to either turn out or to whip up excitement or to... And they'll do the same with Joe Biden and the First Lady and the President. What the Democrats feel good about is that the people who are voting for them in this early period, either by absentee ballot or in, in early in-person voting, are, jargon alert, 
what they call their um, low propensity voters, which is to say the people who aren't likely to vote and you have to do a lot of work to get them. They are, they say they are encouraged and this could be spin and we'll know, you know, on election day. Um, but that the people who they thought they'd have to do a lot of work to get them to turn out are, are voting early. And the reason that's good is, you know, your person who they score on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolute likelihood to vote for her, you know, your 10 is going to vote, you don't care when he votes. But if your twos and threes are voting early, that's good, because you don't have to go spend that time and energy getting them. Donald Um, Trump only wants 10s, maybe nines. (laughs) He doesn't want the twos and threes. That worked just like we diagrammed it backstage. It's amazing. Not true. We had a whole whiteboard thing going. and So Trump spent only so far, I think, about half of the $100 million that he pledged to the campaign at some point. And today he said he was going to give the rest of it. Do you think he's going to give the rest of it? But he's such a, such a s- stellar record of making uh, good on promises he's made about money of his that he's going to give to things. So definitely. No, I, I, I actually don't know. I was surprised to learn that he'd spent $56 million. That That was... Surprising More. to me that he that he'd actually. Given I keep as much waiting for the cash that he's going to get that money back. Well, also it's hard. Um, I'm not certain of this, but at some point you can't spend any more right. money. The the ads are bought or they're not bought. If you're spending money, you're spending it on super. You know, you're supposed to buy all these ads ages ago, but when it's cheaper and you book it, and also. I mean, there's only so many ads you can run, and you the could air- have some more events at Mar-a-Lago and pay yourself back but, for them. Well, I, it's in Florida. Na- right? Nasty woman. Um, <laughs> two weeks in a row. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, spending the money, I mean, unless, you know, the, uh, it's, it's somebody uh, should figure out how, um, this is the kind of thing Slate would have written, how, if you had a whole bunch of money and wanted to spend it, what would be the maximum utility? You could, like, would you hire a bunch let's of volunteers and get them? We yeah, assign, assign that piece to yeah. someone who's listening to the show. Because the thing is, but also the problem is when you pay volunteers, you don't get what free volunteers give. Because when you knock on the door, if you're being paid, you, know, you go through the motions. But if you're doing it because you have the fervor uh, and you're all stoked up with the white hot love of the candidate, then that conveys at the, door, at the doorstop more than if you've just, you're a mercenary. The, do you guys think there's any possibility that Trump... Uh, realizes he's going to lose and Trump hates to lose and therefore pulls sort of pulls himself out of the election and says, you know what? Don't even vote. This thing is it's to- it's totally completely rigged. Don't participate and and sort of takes his ball and goes home and 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 completely screws up the Republicans even more, but saves his own sort of sense of self-worth and say, and is able to say, you know what, I, I didn't lose the election. It was, it was a conspiracy against me. Is there any chance he does that? Well, that was last week. I mean, that was the election is rigged. That was, uh, yeah, there were other... But he didn't, but he didn't tell people he didn't not to vote. He actually tell people not to vote. But he did suggest that he might lose, and he did set himself up to blame the Republican Party and the rigged nature of the election and, you know... Black people are trying to vote in Philadelphia and for his loss. So he went as, I mean, he, he took some steps in that direction, although you're right, he didn't finish it off. Do you think we're going to see another wave of that? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think what he was doing last week was he's basically saying that the vote's going to be stolen. Um, but, but actually p- 
just dropping it. That's the obviously the Armageddon uh, event for Republicans, because then um, none of the Trump voters show up and they need, you know, on election night. The thing to watch is in these close races in um, say, say, a New county, say a county, say a county, say a county. Uh, no, like because the counties that happens. So that yeah, happen, that's actually. next week's show. So the because the counties are. <laughs> Can I ca- stay home? The counties. Are, <laughs> 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 the I'm sorry. I didn't mean to will you. Co- keep going. Tell us about the counties. Tell us about New Hampshire. Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga. Who does that? Um. So anyway, the point is the things to watch are um, the Senate races in like Pennsylvania. If if you start to see a real cratering, it'll be because the base didn't turn. Like there's aren't there aren't that many swing voters. So things in Pennsylvania should be close in like the both the Senate race and in the eighth district in Pennsylvania, which is kind of a swingy district. And if the Democrat wins, that's going to be a good night for Democrats. If the margin is big with the Senate race, that will mean that this that there is a big problem inside the Republican Party. So on the election night, and we'll talk about this more next week, there'll be some places to watch to see if it stays close as the returns are coming in, you'll know it, it's a night in which the whole bottom, it's the difference between a kind of a wave election and just a victory for Hillary Clinton or, you know, obviously, I mean, if it's victory for Donald Trump, those those states will go will go to the republican and you do think that's possible right what that he could win trump could win well i think it's um i think well anything we're getting it all out there anything's possible i think that you know if you look at it right now democrats always have an advantage because there are more states that traditionally go democratic and hillary clinton is positioned to do well in those states she is so she has more opportunities and a wider path to get there to the 270 Donald Trump has a much narrower path. And so he has to win Florida and he has to win Ohio and maybe Wisconsin and Iowa and, and Nevada. New Hampshire, Pennsylvania. And, New, and, and maybe, well, if he wins Pennsylvania, you won't have to win some of those other ones. But he has to win a lot. Hillary Clinton has to basically win Florida or North Carolina. Like if she, if other, other things staying equal. So, um, and if she doesn't win Florida, she can still win North Carolina, uh, and New Hampshire. And, and so, the percentage is at 85% or that's probably, that feels right. Do you guys think there's a possibility, last question on this subject, do you think there's a possibility that Democratic overconfidence prevents Democrats from getting this tidal wave and, and taking the Senate and even threatening to take the House? Is there, are, are Democrats, uh, you know, celebrating in the locker room already when, when there's a lot of work still to do? I feel more aware of the Republicans coming home to roost than the notion that the Democrats are going to get complacent and not turn out, because I think among Democrats, there is such a fear and loathing of Donald Trump. I feel like that's going to power the Democrats through. But what do you think? Uh, I, I don't know. Because you, 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 I mean, it's a huge country and we don't, you know, like, I mean, right now in Nevada, the early vote in, in Nevada suggests that Democrats are turning out actually more forcefully than the polling would have suggested. So in that case, it looks, and then there's something going on in, in uh, California where there are massive registrations. So that you could imagine is um, all Democrats feeling, you know, enthusiastic and excited. They all want to pot in wow. California. <laughs> However, um, 
in North Carolina, where you would also expect, you know, the, the African-American community to be really fired up for a bunch of different reasons. The vote there, the early vote is under where it was in 2012 for both sides. So it's hard to tell what the what's going on. I think there is not yet evidence uh, in the early vote and then the ballots, uh, the absentee ballots, that the shy Trump voter is appearing. And so one of the theories is, so you all have heard about the shy Trump voter, the, the notion that people won't tell pollsters they're really for Donald Trump. We haven't seen evidence in registration numbers in districts where you would expect a high Trump registration turnout, people who are you know nominally Democrats who like his message on trade and, and the kind of blue collar voter that he does so well with. We haven't seen registration rocket up, which is one signal why, you know, suggests that 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 may not happen. We did some polling at CBS. Anthony Salvanto, who's our director of elections, did some polling looking for these voters to try to find them. Couldn't find them, found that people like the facts. Like, since everybody hangs out with people like them, there's no social pressure about saying I'm for Trump because everybody you're with is for Trump. And so the notion of the social pressure that you would feel under when a pollster calls, he wasn't able to find that. We haven't seen it in early voting. So, no, if it's shy, then he can't find it, right? That's the whole point. Yeah. Hiding. That's also, what about the husband-wife splits? Because the gender divide is big enough that there that must exist, that household. Well, division. so if the husband-wife split exists, it, it's, it seems that it's existing less among white college-educated. Um, so the question then is it's a blue-collar white uh, split. And um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we'll see on election night when the exits come out. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Donald Trump will likely lose the presidential election on November 8th, but America... But America may not be done with Donald Trump, and it certainly won't be done with Donald Trump supporters. So first question, Emily, to you is, do you think there is any chance if Trump loses the election and having set the stage with his discussion of the rigged election and voter fraud of actual protest of the results, actual physical protests uh, of, of the election? I'm not that worried about this. I think, I feel like the really impassioned Trump supporters we've heard like to go to rallies. So, I mean, it's possible Donald Trump could try to hold protest rallies, but then he would really be identifying as a loser. 
And that seems unlikely to me that he's going to want to play that role in any kind of sustained way. And, and I don't feel like this is a group of people who seem highly organized on their own. So I, I'm right. waiting well, they're, for them they're, to... They, they're they respond. Rural. Yeah, and they're, and they're spread they're out. They're rural, they're spread out. They're right. not in the concentrated... Well, they can make their area. ways to Trump rallies. I mean... That's true. Do you think and, Trump's going to hold post-election protest rallies? He could actually, you know, standing up in front of, you know, 20,000 people is not a bad, like, it's a pretty, uh, but the question is, what is the result? I was talking to somebody, a Republican office holder who is running for an office in a swing state, and they were basically saying, you know, look, of the, let's say Trump gets 40% of the vote right now. What his point was, was that a lot of those people are just on the Republican team. And they want to vote for the person with the red shirt on. But the core, core Trump supporter within, so within that is really only about 17%. That you've got a lot of people, and, and, and we should draw a real distinction between those people who are diehard Trump supporters and really believe both what he says on policy grounds, but then also what he says about the rigged election and all the rest of it and the elites in the Republican Party. And then you've got another group that are just on his team because they don't like Hillary Clinton. They don't want the Supreme Court to be controlled by liberals. They think America is in decline and want a set of policies that they believe in, that they think that Donald Trump can sign those policies when they're put forward by Paul Ryan. I mean, there's a whole host of it. So we shouldn't mistake the, the vote total he gets for what the core rally uh, group is. Well, Emily, do you think that Trump without a campaign is an interesting figure? So Sarah Palin tried a little bit after th- 2008 to continue a, a Palin-esque movement. And, and Sarah Palin, frankly, is like the president of Mensa compared to Trump <laughs> when you think about policy kinds of issues. But she, even she didn't really pull that off. So do you think that Trump and Trump has a very short attention span. He doesn't want to be associated with something which is which he perceives as losing and being a loser. Is is he is he a going to stick with it? And b is if he does stick with it, is he interesting? Because Palin couldn't maintain that. I think that he's not interesting, and also that the this is on the media. The media has to decide to walk away from whatever ratings bonus that he has carried in the past and. And really let him go because if if the, if we pay attention to him, then he it's a push pull. Then he will stay. He will he. We know that he cares the most basically about media attention and headlines. And so if he's receiving that, then he's going to be tempted to um, to stay with us. So let's play this out, okay? So he doesn't win. The if he goes into a district that and. Um, you know, pulls up a rally of 15,000 people. Like, that's going to cause members of Congress to behave. That's going to frighten them. And so I think he plays a role in their thinking in a way that... uh, But who has rallies of 15,000 people when there's not an election campaign going on? Who's ever done that? Who has beaten 16 people after never Uh, having... I know. Don't answer my rhetorical question with your rhetorical (laughs) question. Answer my question. Well, I mean, um, I guess my point possible, is, though. I guess my point is, uh, how is saying like, how could that happen? I mean, this this like the nine hundred eighty seven. Maybe we should be time. designing an exit ramp for him. Well, so, but here's the point: is that he does um, his, you know, his core will still be his core. So those people are showing up and have showed up and will continue to show up because they believe in what he's saying about the system and about America, and those people are 
they're not, you know, they're not going anywhere. I mean, so what they, about Trump TV? Do we think that's a real vehicle or is it too expensive? It's too expensive. He's interested in free media coverage. He's not interested in anything where he'd actually have to invest money and spend money. So I think he, he is very unlikely to drop the kind of dollars required to create a Fox competitor when he can, he's been able to use what he's enjoyed is being able to use Fox and CNN for his own ends. He's not going to want to spend $50 million to build studios and hire other talent to, to staff it. So I, I think he, he might pursue it, but I, first of all, it would be such a tedious thing to watch because he is such a tedious person to watch over, over time. But also I'm not sure it would pull the ratings that he needs to, to sustain it. Well, that's the challenge is the ratings problem because you can get a rally, you can get a rally full of 20,000 people, but that's not enough. I don't think to create a going long-term television concern. But if you look at, I mean, think of the trouble the Republicans had in the last Senate primaries, Donald Trump could be so much more effective than Sarah Palin was in challenging establishment Senate candidates. He could make continuous mischief in the Republican Party in a way that, you know, the mainstream media doesn't need to report this. Um, They can try and ignore Donald Trump, but that doesn't matter because the voters in the Republican primary process in the the off-year elections of 18 are going to be listening to their own channels, which is either Fox or Breitbart or social media. Let's dig into that because the polls this week suggest that Republicans overwhelmingly, by significant majority, favor Trump's direction for the Republican Party over Paul Ryan's. And they trust Trump as the... Don't don't make that face. They trust Trump... (laughs) They trust Trump more as the tribune of the party than Ryan. Part of it is name ID. Most people don't even know who Paul Ryan is. So it's an, sort of an unfair comparison. Trump is in the news. But what, who, what are the constituent parts of the Republican Party, Emily, in the post-Trump era? There is, who, who, who are these parts? And is it, where is the center of gravity? Right. Well, I mean, the deep fear of the Republican mainstream establishment party is that the center is among people who feel much more fear and resentment over immigration and the country's chaining demographics than the wonky economic uh, Paul Ryan people who want lower taxes, who want the typical Republican platform. And if that is true, then the the party's going to have to figure out how to respond to that. Um, And Paul Ryan isn't going to be any kind of appealing leader going forward. And then the question is, well, who emerges? Because it's hard to replicate Trump but on the inside, but the party is going to want to expel Trump as fast as possible and pretend that he never existed, won't well, they? Some, right. There's a Ben Dominic um, at the Federalist had a great line in which he's quoting from Mad Men in, in which he said, you know, it'll may- be amazing how fast this didn't happen for some... For some Republicans. Um, For Mitch McConnell, who won't talk about it even as well, it is happening. Well, right, right. Now, we, uh, that isn't a striking thing about this election, that the majority leader of the Senate will not say the name of his party's nominee. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just a fact. It's, that's unprecedented. And um, Paul Ryan won't get on the stage with his party's nominee. Yeah, well, and his party's nominee doesn't want to be on stage with him either. But I guess... Um, You know, one thing we should also think about as we're thinking this through is that um, one of the benefits Donald Trump also brings to the party and the reason the the Republican Party won't detach themselves from him is because he is an incredible money raiser for the party, both in total dollar amounts, but also in the number of people who will write 
a $5, $10 check for Donald Trump. Now, why does that matter? Because once you get as a party and the Democrats and the, the Obama campaign were expert at this, once you get your hooks into somebody for five bucks, you can keep going back at them for five bucks over and over and over and over again, which is not just a, a matter of continually soaking them, taking money out of their pockets, but also you are in touch with them constantly so that when you need them to turn out, you have this ongoing relationship. That is super powerful. And if he wants to lock that up and hold that uh, for himself, the party, as we've seen here in this election, um, will be in trouble. And so that'll be, you know, that'll be a power he continues to hold after the election. But do you guys think there is any organizing principle to the post-Trump Republican Party? Right now, there's this amazing story in Washington Post. The headline was something like, I think it was, I wrote it down perhaps accurately, GOP preparing for years of investigations of Clinton. Yeah, I saw that. That's and, it, right. and so the, 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 the Republican Congress's unifying principle seems to be opposition to Clinton and investigation of Clinton. Maybe that's something that you can sustain. That can be a governing majority principle for some period of time. But I don't know. And can they even hold themselves together coherently long enough to get to 2018 or 2020? Or did they need to? Is it really these two factions and they're just going to pretend they're together? The Democrats went through this for a long time where they were a congressional party and didn't have a national voice until Bill Clinton changed things. I think the, the 18 will, will, and this is what a lot of Republicans are worried about, is that in 2018, particularly in the Senate, the number of Democrats who are in states where, it's, where they're going to have a tough time is there's a big number. There's a it's basically the map is bad, bad for Republicans. It's a bad map for Democrats. Dem- bad map for Democrats in eighteen. Good map for Republicans. In off year elections, as we know, Republicans tend to turn out more than Democrats do. So opposition to if in this scenario Hillary Clinton is the president, opposition to Hillary Clinton will be a rallying cry for this group. So it will incentivize people to not have a big thoroughgoing bloody investigation because everybody will be unified against Hillary Clinton. They're already, you know, that's an easy um, position for them to get to. And it won't cause anybody to say, let's have a reexamination um, in, in some of the same ways that there was not the kind of reexamination that the Republican call- Party called for with its growth and opportunity report, also known as the autopsy, is that people thought, you know, we, we've got Barack Obama and Obamacare and, and his uh, creeping socialism to align against. And so that was an easy rallying cry rather than the difficult business of, of reordering a party. Do, Emily, do you think that uh, are these Trump voters, the, the 17%, let's say, who John identifies as the core, are they people the Republican Party is actually going to be able to live with? Because there's a lot of evidence that they're, they're nativist, white nationalists, a lot of racist sentiment. I mean, there's economic populism in there, but there's a lot of deep unpleasantness. Can the party live with that group as a, not just as a silent component, which it's lived with for a long time, it's had that as a silent component, but as an actual vocal uh, major voice of the party? Well, those voters are useful in House elections, especially, right? Because people live in way, in separate communities in ways that makes them a potent force in electing representatives. And But then, once those representatives get to Congress, if they are truly loyal to that set of beliefs, that is going to cause giant headache for the party. Are they different from the Tea Party? The Tea Party has sort of disappeared from our conversation. Is this just like the latest version of the Tea Party, or is no. this a different group I mean, there's of a split. I mean, this is part of the 
split. So when you think of the, if you think of the split that took place between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, that was, you know, there were a lot of Tea Party voters who were Ted Cruz. There are a lot of Tea Party voters who support Donald Trump. And the, what makes the lines messy is that you have Hillary Clinton, which is, you know, you can be a Tea Party person who's for small government and, and doesn't think Donald Trump is really for small government as well, but you really don't like Hillary Clinton. So you might be a Tea Party person supporting Donald Trump, but you're not signing up to his principles because his are... There's in the uh, recent Washington Post poll, 57% of Republicans say that Trump doesn't represent the core values of the Republican Party. He is his own thing. He is his own party. Which he's is, an insurgent. Yeah. I mean, but he's an insurgent without a, there's not a, like a, if you were to say, what are his 10 things, you would start with the wall and then that, that's a, that's kind of it. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing that. You should stop wall, giving the our wall, muscle. The wall and then nine women he's groping. But it's. <laughs> What's amazing is that, you know, he always had available to him the real change message, which he's gotten to now when he talks about draining the swamp. But um, early on when I did, and God love Whistle Stop, when I did the Perot campaign, Whistle Stop, this is the reason I do it, which is when I went and spent a lot of time with the Perot campaign, Perot had a reform agenda. And it was a set of things where he said, Washington is broken and here are the 10 things we need to do to fix it. Trump never did that until recently, until like last week when he right. started talking about term limits and that kind of thing. It's an extraordinary thing that he didn't do that earlier. The whole point here is, though, that there's not a like agenda to go grab for Ted Cruz or for somebody to be the Ronald Reagan to Barry Goldwater, who takes the mantle of the beginning movement and then carries it forward. That's, to me, what's really fascinating, which is what is... Who tries to pick up that standard? Because everybody's going to try and move to the open field. One person's going to be the, like, moralist and say, you know, I mean, the sort of Jeff Flake, Ben Sass position. We're better than this. Well, and, and, and John Kasich, who said for a long time, this is, you know, they've been anti-Trump for a long time. There will be others who try to kind of run around and pretend that they weren't with him. And there will be somebody who, and maybe it's Ted Cruz, who says... I'm sort of what Reagan, they used to say about Reagan with, uh, and Goldwater, which is conservatism with a sort of, with a happy face. So Donald Trump, but with a happy Ted face. Ted Cruz, the right. basset hound man is going to be the happy face. I'm the, not all, not all analogies are perfect. Um, so anyway, and, and so, but it'd be interesting. What do you pick up, right? What is it of, because Donald Trump is such a, a particular character that you, how do you grab that without being him? I, can I just finish this segment slightly off topic? But one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about this is we're assuming the Re Republicans hold the House, which I think is likely, yeah. not certain, but likely. Um, it will be a, a Republican House majority that is entirely oppositional to Hillary Clinton. It will basically be defined by its opposition to Hillary Clinton. And, and it'll be holding lots of investigative hearings. And what that will mean is that from 2010 until... 2021, when the earliest that Hillary Clinton will be out of office, we will effectively have not a single piece of legislation of any import passed by the Congress of the United States. That it, was oh, it was an oppositional Congress that will have done literally nothing to address any of the issues that anybody cares about on either side around our infrastructure, around immigration, fixing around Obamacare. tax reform, around fixing Obamacare, and around any kind of investments to stimulate the economy. It will have done the bare minimum, which has basically gotten a budget through by just chicanery every year and, and, and sort of saying we'll use last year's numbers. Um, and it, it's, it, we are at the, whether, whether or not Trump wins, Trump will not win, but what, even when Trump loses, 
it, we are deluding ourselves if we think that the political system is any closer to being healthy than it was uh, before November 8th. Are you skeptical? And what happens to the Supreme Court? I mean, I don't want to hijack the conversation, but we could not have a full Supreme Court. Well, I mean, we're already gearing up for that. John McCain, of all people, of all usually responsible sort of people, uh, suggested that they might not confirm a nominee. Uh, yeah, I think we'll see where uh, we'll see what happens when the election's over and what the size of the loss is and who wins. And I think there's a lot of stuff that might be different. I mean, I, I, I feel like Merrick Garland could... Make it through yeah. in December. Uh, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of... Um, He'll be so happy that you said that. Well, I don't know. I just think there's a, there is a lot of pent-up energy in the system, that, uh, particularly on the Republican side, that's going to release if Donald Trump doesn't win. I think if it releases if he wins, too. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of shifting. And, and because if, if he does win, legislation will have to be produced it will have to go through the system and there will be either he will do what a lot of Republicans want, which is basically sign whatever the Republican house sends him. Now the problem there is you have to get it through a Senate. And if the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, that'll be different. But I guess the there's no universe in which Trump wins the presidency and the Republicans hold the Senate. They you no, they no, no. don't in which no, so they do hold the Senate. And the there's Republicans no, lose the Senate. Lose the Senate. You're right. You're right. 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 So, so, um, in general, of course, you're right that there is a, um, you know, you can never go wrong betting on sclerosis. But I think that we have to wait because it, it, accepting your premise, which is that he loses and probably loses big, I think that does rearrange some, rearrange I'll, some things. I will bet you any dollar amount you want that if the Republicans hold the House, there well, will they're be. they're going to hold the House. Yeah. Well, then there will be no significant legislation Unless on any Trump issue. Unless wins. And well, the if it, the Senate. Yeah, no, there yeah, yeah, no, that, and that in, a, in some sense would be better. At least there would be governance. Um, well, we'd be trying something and actually really going for it, it full the, throttle. <laughs> and we'll see how there would be, it goes. Right, the parliamentary there system I long for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap that one there with your booze, <laughs> with your booze and derision. <laughs> a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West, Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Emily had this uh, phrase, the repair shop, that America kind of needs to go and get itself fixed after this election. And so we thought we would use our final segment to try to come up with a few specific things that could fix the election and uh, to fix fix the country. And, and Everything. One is, what is the thing that, that will presume President Clinton, but it doesn't, you could presume President Trump for the sake of this, can do sort of symbolically that might help bring people together. And that, so that will be one category of question. The second will be, what reforms could we apply to our political system, to journalism, to anything you choose that would make the next election less horrific to go through? What are the ways that we could change our electoral process or how we cover our electoral process that might make it better? So 
Does anyone want to volunteer to, to take one of those? And Definitely start? John wants oh. to volunteer. So let's imagine first that Donald Trump wins. I know everybody here has been praying for that. Um, the, what we've seen in the debates, which is the real challenge here for his presidency, is that it, the debates put a compulsory set of restraints on a candidate to do a certain group of things to participate in the debate. He basically blew off all of those and tried to basically run it on his terms. So, you know, if he wins, that will have been a brilliant strategy. But you can't do that with Congress. Like, it would be chaos. So the there are things he could do that would show, and, and, and you know, we, we'd have to, it would be a double Republican Congress. So... In that case, he probably wouldn't have to do that much. Now, if you're Hillary Clinton, what you do is not only all the stuff that she says privately that they believe privately that Obama didn't do, which is you go pay visits repeatedly to the Republican leaders and to the Democrats and that you spend a lot of time hanging out with Congress doing all the stuff that seems so petty and stupid uh, in terms of just constant maintenance of Congress. And you find out what Paul Ryan needs, since it's going to be a, a Republican House. And you find out not only what Paul Ryan needs, but what all the members in close districts need. And you basically work it constantly. Um, Does she have things she can give them that they need that are not her head well, on the platter? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Well, this is where this is where it'll be interesting to David's point about. I mean, we'll see where the election goes. But a, but a Republican Congress that is investigating all the time is not, I'm not sure that's necessarily in the large Republican Congress's best interest. And that'll be a push and pull between the committee chairmen and the speaker, because the speaker wants to get things done. But then I think more than just the inside game, I, there are pockets of the country, and some of the greatest people I've talked to, uh, corresponded with this election have been Democrats who've said, you know, Donald Trump has reached into a constituency that we should have some way to appeal to. And we lost that constituency. That used to be us. That used to be our party. And we need to go get those people and remind them why they should be voting for our party and not just be fighting it out on Twitter. And, you Twitter, know, not a place where anyone right. really um, comes around. And, and as a president, you can go do that. You can go, you know, um, I mean, when John Kennedy won in West Virginia in the primary, he then delivered for West Virginia. Hillary Clinton had a bad symbolic moment with mining and West Virginia. She's likely to lose most of the counties, like maybe all of the counties in West Virginia. And yet you go right there and you say, I am your president. And you do a lot of that all the time. Listening tour. Well, no. Well, either listening or just, um, you know, uh, symbolic placing yourself in the company with that portion of the country that didn't vote for you as a as a symbolic effort to kind of bring the country back together. Um, what about taking on opiate addiction? Since that is a problem for exactly that community, it's something that she could plausibly try to own. Yeah. It's like in her, right? She wouldn't be faking it. Right, right, right. And then there's also an issue set like that. It's Well, they've already done one set of legislation on opiate addiction, but um, you're right. I mean, since like Rob Portman's going to be reelected in Ohio, you work with him on that issue. Um, but then there's infrastructure and, and uh, infrastructure. prison reform that you could um, you could cobble together a set of uh, issues. But the thing is, if you look at what's happening with Obamacare that needs to be fixed by legislative fix, you could argue that like one of the first things that the new president is going to have to do is either scrap it, Donald Trump is president, or if you're Hillary Clinton, you've got to like, there's got to be legislation to fix its problems. And if you start your new, your new term 
going up that hill again. Yeah, that's... that's... But if you don't, if you look at what's happening to it... Again, this is where I get to my point. The Republicans want it to die. They'd be happy if it died. Well, so, well, so they won't... Whatever. It's going to be... It's on her plate whether she wants it to be or not. Um, if you were Obama, you would catch it. Emily, <laughs> what, what's your... What is something that you would have President Clinton do to unify us? Well... I think it would, so this is, I'm not wishing this upon anyone, but it would be helpful for her to have a natural disaster to deal with in a red state where she could go and be, because she would be able to, no, seriously, I'm not saying I want it to happen, but it would, the timing would be helpful. You just think that was totally a bad thing to uh. say? Because, look, she can't just bring back factory jobs. Uh, though the infrastructure, maybe I'll pivot to infrastructure. <laughs> Horrified, John, but by calling down. Republicans don't want infrastructure. They do they do? Trump she, wants infrastructure. Republican House oh, yeah, doesn't yeah. want government spending on infrastructure. They've constrained it at every moment. Hmm. Well, people want infrastructure. They just don't want to um, get Paper? caught. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at if you look at a lot of those House members who are in tough districts, they're telling their constituents about the infrastructure they brought yeah, well, back they to the want, state. They want the pork barrel, but they don't. They can't publicly have it, and they would rather. They also don't want to give Hillary Clinton. Well, especially victories. if it's stealing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, it seems like of all so natural, things, what we kind of natural to, disaster? No, no, I don't want to go down this road. John was too upset by it. Let's go back to infrastructure. What they couldn't they put together a deal for things like bridges and tunnels that everybody needs that employ exactly the people who are at Will the moment at loose ends? Will not happen. Hey, what's your idea? My mine. <laughs> <laughs> Alien invasion was mine. <laughs> that upset John less. That's a natural actually. disaster. No, mine is very much mine. Mine's like John's, kind of. It's that he that she needs to do some highly uh, public, personal, direct outreach to the people who didn't but of vote course for her. And woman president who has to do this. She's no, like gonna have to no, bring her knitting and true. like listen to everyone. No, that's not true. Bar Obama had to do it too, and he just argues that he did try to do it, and it and it didn't pay off. But the, so why are you prescribing it again, you guys? You don't have a new. Well, because there's well, a because there's a because because I would not make mine around reaching out to Congress. Although John made his case, and actually I was sort of persuaded by that. But mine was more that doing things with citizens. Every yeah. week you have a, a tea with a with one citizen and oh my God, in the that's White so House. Small a tea. Makes it like right, and yeah. you bring it. No, you can't or embroider beer. your way. Well, the out problem, of problem. <laughs> the the problem with getting out into the country is that the thing is that no, whoever the next president is going to be pinned down by. And there's a big world out there, and it's it's rumbling, and there's going to be a lot of stuff to like pin you down that's unpredictable and that has to do with national security, and that's a you know that's something we forget in our elections, but that's also that's what makes it hard to go just like zipping out into the country. Um, because you're kind of, you got other things on your plate. All right, we've healed the breach. What about, <laughs> what are some practical things that we could do so that we don't have a 578-day election campaign next time and that it's not as unbearable as it was this time? What are practical you know, uh, things that we could change? Well, we could uh, stake through the heart of the First Amendment. If you're going to shorten the campaign season and make it cheaper, then we just can't have the First Amendment that we have. We need a Euro the more European system of certain time election season with a certain amount of money, but that's not going to happen. 
Right, I so would take just uh, trying to resurrect some of the Voting Rights Act protections that we lost. Because I'm worried about all these people and their closed down polling places. So this, my uh, fix for journalism, which is sort of combined with that, which is an idea that I've wanted to do. And then I saw Dave Weigel posted something on Facebook around the, uh, or along the same lines, which is, so at the University of Virginia, where I went to school, the rooms on the lawn were very small. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I we're went to s- Harvard. Small. <laughs> I just wanted to do that just to get that Boston crowd. That was all. I... <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the the rooms on the lawn um, have no bathrooms. They're really small. They're cold. Uh, but they turned it into an honor to live in one of those rooms. And, so, and now they've got plenty of people who want to live in those rooms. We should make the incentives for covering state houses and states. Turn it in, like, get some, one of these dot-com billionaires to put a whole lot of money behind journalism at the state level so that it becomes, like, if you're an up-and-coming journalist who wants to go do great and glorious things, go do it in the States so that, because A, that's where the action's happening. Stuff happens in States, A. B, you learn how to be a great journalist in the States because stuff is happening. C, you're closer to the real people than you are when you're in Washington and you're channeling it through like 52 different levels and nobody has any money to send you out in the country anymore. And then D, you have this, you turn perhaps the focus of good journalism out into the country where all these great stories are being done and stop spending a bunch of time covering like non-events around national politics that are just non-events. If and the, does the audience follow? It does. Well, ultimately, if, if the billionaire is, in, is paying the salaries, basically we don't care if the audience follows at, at first, but then the audience will follow because the journalism will be great and amazing and the audience locally will follow. And then what happens is you have people who know really what's happening in states where one of any number of things that affect national policy can be taking place. So whether it's energy, whether it's the fracking story, whether it's the voting rights story, whether it's the concealed carry story, whether whatever any of these stories are that are going on in our fertile and amazing country, they get covered by real people who are right there watching it, not like all of us who kind of discover it when some national politician decides to hold up something in a kind of a funhouse mirror some billionaire, that's what you should do. Yeah, that's a great idea. And it's, it's, they've done that with, I mean, stat news, with health coverage and the Marshall Project around um, criminal, justice. criminal justice. And there's a guns one, ProPublica, sort of that way. It's a, it's a very good idea, John. Um, my ideas are really lame, so I'll... We'll you know, I'm not going to offer anything? Well, the, the only... Um, they're all, like, mandatory voting and things like that. The only one I would support was... Uh, what would happen if we didn't have party ID on ballots so that you actually go, went into the voting booth and you would sort of have to know something, something about, about the them, person, something about the person. How would that work? Oh my God. Down ballot. That would be so crazy. Be so hard and weird. Well, it wouldn't it incentivize, um, you know, high name ID, like celebrity type candidates. And it would, right. it would also and incentivize incumbents. incumbents. Right. It would and also incumbents. even more acts of like gaudy, you know, circus behavior in order right. to get yourself right. Changing your name to David right. Republican plots. It might yeah. be a really bad idea. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's uh, somebody. Uh, there's somebody in D.C. I noticed whose name was. Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember. It was. It was literally something like John Fifth Amendment White, yeah. um, or probably Second Amendment would probably be more 
Yeah, the Fifth Amendment, huh? <laughs> I, I lost the thread mid-sentence there, Emily. <laughs> Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when you're when you're sipping a beer, when you're sipping a beer, Emily Bazelon, with uh, the little Bazelons, what are you going to be chattering about? My cocktail chatter, which hopefully I will call up in a moment, is about a podcast I should have recommended long ago. It's um, the More Perfect Union. No, yeah. More Perfect Union podcast from Radiolab. And I listened to it. Some, so it's a miniseries about the Supreme Court. Of course I like this podcast. But I listened to it over the summer and accidentally skipped an episode that I um, listened to today, which was amazing about... James Batson and the Batson rule. I tried out the Batson rule idea on John earlier, and he didn't know what it was. So now I'm going to tell you guys. So the there, but just for the record, there was an audible gasp from the audience at the idea that he didn't know about the <laughs> Batson my rule. People. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Batson rule is the rule that makes it um, against the rules to strike jurors on the basis of race. So usually prosecutors often are striking African-Americans from juries. And in this podcast, Radiolab's folks went and found James Batson, who was a black defendant who brought this challenge to the Supreme Court. And there are many great parts of the story. They also found the prosecutor who had struck the black jurors, and he had quite a nice tale of redemption. But my favorite detail about this story was that James Batson, who was on trial for a burglary that he said he didn't commit, he watched the prosecutor strike these black people from the jury, and he said to his defense lawyer, you need to object. And the defense lawyer said, there's nothing to object to. This is completely legal, what's happening. This was in 1984 or 5. I think the Supreme Court decision is from 86, if I'm right. And, And James Batson said, I don't care. This is wrong. You need to make an objection. And that was crucial to the case because if you don't object to trial, you don't preserve the argument on appeal. And so because James Batson, this defendant, just thought this was wrong, this case went up to the Supreme Court and changed the law. Uh, I'm going to say that was a good note to end on, but I'm going to step on my own ending by adding another thing I liked about this podcast is that the Batson rule didn't really solve all the problems um, at all. And they really dig into that in quite an impressive way. So... If you're interested, you should, guys should go listen. It's from July. It's called the, the episode's called "Object Anyway." So I found that fascinating. Unlike Hamilton County, which you don't find fascinating. I do. Uh, that was so mean of me. I totally do. I can't wait for Hamilton County. What state is it in? Would, it, that, would that be your music? That's going to be your musical right. based on election returns. Yes, exactly. Hamilton County. Hamilton County. Alexander Hamilton County. There's a million votes I haven't counted. But just you wait till next. All right, my Tuesday. skin's gonna come off my body and crawl away if you keep singing. <laughs> Bring your chatter. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. So in 1860, it was possible. Uh, so as you all know, and we should just lay the groundwork here that that most of this. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, does anybody have to call the sitter? Yeah. Get a little ex- no. Uh, it's mostly I'm just excited by things that everybody else knows, but that I'm just discovering. So in 1860, um, it was if you were a Republican in this burgeoning new party, it was sometimes if you were a Republican official, sometimes you would be awakened in the middle of the night by uh, throngs of young men in the same military dress outside of your house with huge torches 
insisting that you come out and give a political speech. Uh, I didn't realize this. Um, until doing some research for something else, I discovered what the, 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 this group of young men in the election of 1860 called the Wide Awakes. Some of you may know about them. I didn't. These were young men who all wore the exact same dress of these black capes made of oil cloth and these very funny hats. And the reason they wore this absurd costume is that they carried these enormous torches where the oil would burn and then drip down on them. And so they had to have these very elaborate costumes. But what's more interesting about this is the way in which it feels exactly like... So I spent a lot of time with McGovern's youth movement and Dean's youth movement, and here you have the beginnings of the Republican Party, and you have this huge youth movement. 70,000 people showed up in New York, 150,000 spectators to watch them march, and they would march in a zigzag because that was to replicate the rails, right? Lincoln was the rail splitter, and this was the zigzag, zigzag pattern to uh, replicate the rails that he was supposed to be associated with. Right now, somebody's checking, like, on the Cubs-Indians game. Um, I think the Cubs are up by one, in case you're... Um, you are um, checking. Yeah, no, 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 I'm not. I can just see the little pockets of light going up in the, um, in the audience. But the, further, what was interesting is that... Um, remember when Gloria Steinem said that the Sanders supporters were just like young people who wanted to have romance? Uh, it was worse than that. Yep. Yes, <laughs> I do remember. Well, I, well, I, I want to... Anyway, so the, the, these wide awakes, like the appeal was to masculinity. There was a cartoon book um, of the story of Pip. And Pip's was a little cartoon and the pamphlet begins with him admiring his mustache in a mirror. And then he gets into a fight about his father, with his father, who doesn't want him to join this new movement. And he says, basically, at the end, he's going to vote for Abraham Lincoln, thereby becoming, quote, a man of the world and a politician. So your masculinity was associated with creating this new movement. So in, in conclusion, that's supposed to be an applause line. <laughs> Two things. One, in Boston, these uh, the wide awake um, rallies were such a big deal and made so much noise that when there was a little earthquake, people didn't pay any mind to it because they thought it was a wide awake rally. Um, but then it all takes a very dark turn, which is that in the South, they saw these militarized youths marching around and they were like, they're coming down here. This is the preparation for the invasion. And they, it's unclear from the reading whether this was just a couple of people in the South who decided this was a convenient stalking horse or whether they really felt that this was the beginning. But the sign-up percentages when the war did break out of wide awakes to the Union Army were pretty high. So that's it. Thanks for listening. My chatter uh, is a funny one. So there was an interesting... No, I didn't. It's not funny. It's just, it's odd. So there was a story yesterday about the Vatican's new policy about cremation. Uh, That is a knee slapper. (laughs) And they are discouraging, they're discouraging kinds of cremation where you get yourself shot into orbit or have your ashes intermingled with your dogs or put in a locket or things like that. Uh, But it got me thinking about death and about recording your own death. And I, and I was thinking about a fight or a discussion that my brother and I, my brother who's here tonight, and I have had, uh, yeah, you applaud John Plotz. Uh, and John really thinks, he thinks it's important that you have a grave marker, that you're, you be remembered with a, with a notice on your gravestone. And I really don't care that much, but it got me thinking about 
a subject that sometimes goes around the Atlas Obscura office that Josh Four, my colleague at Atlas Obscura, has raised, which is who is the first person whose name we know in history? Before a certain point, way back, we don't know anyone's name. And so whose name is the first name that we know? And you would think it was some king or, or um, prophet or something. It turns out it's not. It turns out there are two credible cases. They both come from uh, Mesopotamia, and it's about 5,000 years ago. They're from these clay clay tablets which have markings on them with dots and brackets and little drawings. I'm, I'm deriving this from a Robert Krolwich uh, blog post, actually. And the, the one is from about 3200 BCE, so about 5200 years ago, and it is a tablet which says 29,086 measures of barley, 37 months, Kushim. And so it's the idea is that there's that much barley delivered over 37 months to or by someone named Kushim. They think Kushim is a name. So that's number one. And the other one is a couple hundred years later. They're not sure that Kushim is a name. So there's, I have a question. there's debate. And the other one is... I have a question. Yes. Was the... Was that just somebody who was the first person who was identified who then later died? Or was that actually like signifying the person's death? It wasn't the first name person. No, just to say. No, it, wasn't, okay. it wasn't signifying death at all. It was signifying a business deal. Oh, okay. So, and then we Which obviously assume that that person is dead despite yes. a good diet. Yeah. yeah. Despite all that barley they were eating. <laughs> Uh, they were probably brewing it or something. It was, it was uh, early brewers. So the other one um, is about a, a guy named Gal Sal, which is a funny name, Gal Friday. Gal Sal, who, and his two slaves, Enpap and Sukalgir, and that's around 3000 BC, and it's recording that Gal Pap owns these two people. And so there's something I find both moving and depressing that our earliest records of human beings are around commerce and around ownership of other human beings. So that's... Oh, definitely good, because that's social history as opposed to, as opposed know, to famous as opposed to men, famous people, political yeah. history. Yeah. yeah. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Faith Smith put the show on. Thank you, Faith. Thank you to the Wilbur Theater for having us here. Yeah. Thank you to Jeff Friedrich for introducing us. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. The Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you, Boston. We'll see you in Boston soon. Thank you.